Let's just bow our hearts and commit this time of uh, studying God's word to him. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you now for this opportunity to read and to study your word together. Lord, we thank you that your word tells us that it is there to instruct us, to help us, to equip us, to make us thoroughly furnished, to have everything we need. Lord, unto good works. Lord, that what we read should prompt us to step out into this world and live lives for your glory, live lives as a witness to you. So, Father, we pray this morning, and particularly with the chapters and the verses we'll be looking at, that you stir our hearts and give us a hunger and a a love for those that don't yet know you. Father, we just give this time to you. Speak to us, we pray, and stir our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know whether you've had moments in your walk as Christians where maybe you don't just feel in the right place or you feel that you're not as close to God as you want to be. You don't feel like you're hearing God's voice or maybe you're, for whatever reason, just seem to be out of touch with God. One of the good things is for us as Christians that our relationship is not based upon feelings. It's based upon facts. You know, a relationship between a husband and wife is not based on feelings. Of course, the feelings come into it, but it's based upon facts. It's based upon things that you can substantiate, things you can always kind of go back to. There's a bedrock to relationships that's beyond just the emotion of the moment. And these chapters help to remind us as we look this morning that our relationship with Jesus Christ is not based upon how we feel at any particular moment in time. If you remember last week, we saw this angel making this statement saying to the other angels that were about the four corners of the earth saying hurt not the earth neither the sea nor the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads and then we saw these 144,000 Jews sealed and seemingly for the purpose of going and preaching the gospel because we then see a multitude that have come to know the Lord during this time and then we see them later taken out of this world, caught up to the throne. This multitude are taken out before the troubles really begin. And already we've seen a number of uh, catastrophes on a, a scale that we can't even begin to imagine. Under the seven seals, we've seen one and a half billion people die. I mean, we've never seen anything like that in, in our knowledge of history. We're looking at the trumpets this morning and we'll see as they sound. And with each of these succeeding judgments, things get progressively worse. When we get to the thunders, John's told not even to mention them. And then finally we get to the vials, these horrific, in a sense, judgments. But God is, of course, just in doing so. And we'll read and understand that as we go through. We have yet to see these two witnesses. We'll see that when we get to chapter 11. They are eventually taken up and caught up to the throne. The 144,000 Jews we mentioned already are also taken up, raptured if you like again. The martyrs from the tribulation also eventually are all taken out and come and stand before the throne in heaven. But our focus really this morning is on the events that are taking place on earth. Chapter 8, really subtitled The Sound of Silence if you like. And begins verse 1 and says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, so remember we've been going through the sixth seals we've opened already, we've seen those, each succeeding seal being opened of this scroll that the Lamb took out of the Father's hand, seemingly the title deed to the earth, that Jesus is now claiming this back. And finally the last seal is taken off. And when that happens, we're told there is silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the, the feeling, the emotion, the suspense, in a sense, 
of everything going silent. It's really quite strange. You know, we've seen this exuberant worship in chapters 4 through to 7, these glimpses of all that's going on in heaven, and now everything just stops. And silence, in a sense, can be deafening. We're going to see now that the seventh seal is going to usher in these seven trumpet judgments. But it's really as if all heaven suddenly remembers what is about to happen, because this angel has already said to hold back the judgment until that sealing was done, and then that wrath is coming. And now we're about to see those things. Now I remember some years ago we had an eclipse, and it was kind of in the middle of the day, and I went outside, I was working in Kent at the time, and I remember just everything went dark. And the, the, the strangest thing was all the birds suddenly stopped singing. I don't know if you remember that or experienced that. And it was really quite eerie. Everything went silent. There was a film and they were looking for uh, an explosion and they were trying to get a dramatic effect to this thing. And the uh, the people that were doing the, the production of it decided they tried all sorts of different sounds to, to, to give it impact. And they decided the best sound of all was silence. And as you watch this film, you get to this point of this explosion and suddenly everything cuts. It's just silent. And then there's a noise. But that silence really is what gives it the impact. You know, silence really can get our attention. Uh, you may have, some of you, been or seen at a, a football ground. You know, there's a, sometimes there's a moment silence or a minute silence for remembering a player that's died or whatever, you know. And you've got thousands of people suddenly silent. And it's a really strange kind of experience. But this now is happening in heaven for half an hour, just getting ready for what is to come. And John says, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So we're now going to see again these things just start to, to build. The first time we see seven trumpets is in the book of Joshua. And it's really interesting because we seem to have this incredible parallel between the two books. Seven trumpets in Joshua are used, seven trumpets here in Revelation. And if the print's a bit small, I apologize, this will all be in the notes and the, the study notes I provide afterwards. But just to talk you through these things, in the book of Joshua, Joshua, the name, his name means, are you sure? The Lord saves. That's the same name as Jesus. Jesus' name is Yeshua. So in a sense, both books have the same title because this is the book of Joshua. This is the revelation of Yeshua. And interestingly, the subject matter of the book of Joshua is Joshua dispossessing the usurpers from the land. Well, that's exactly the same study, really, that we're looking at here, as Jesus is now setting about dispossessing the usurpers from the land. The land, now the planet Earth, belongs to him. He's claiming back title, just as Joshua was claiming back title of the promised land that God had already granted to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. We find that in Joshua, this silence there that precedes the blowing of the trumpets, just as we've seen here in Revelation. In both books, we have seven trumpets that are blown. In the book of Joshua, Joshua comes face to face with the commander of the army of the Lord. And it's the commander of the army of the Lord himself that fights the battle. Well, what we find in the book of Revelation as we get towards the end, chapters 19 and so, we find it's Jesus that will fight the battle against his enemies. And it's exactly the same. In the book of Joshua, we find that he sends two spies into Jericho, but they don't really act as spies. All they end up doing is getting somebody saved. They're more like witnesses. And of course we see in the book of Revelation, Jesus sends in two witnesses. We'll see that, as I said, in chapter 11. 
In the book of Joshua, we've got this king, Adonai Zedek, who sets himself up, this self, the, the Lord of, of um, righteousness, effectively, is his title that he gives himself here. He sets himself up as the king of Jerusalem. Well, Antichrist will do exactly the same. He will set himself up in place of Christ as king of Jerusalem, king of the world, effectively. He'll take on that responsibility. In the book of Joshua, the battle of Beth Horon, there's signs in the sun, moon and stars. Well, we see the same. We've already seen that in Revelation 6 and there's more as we go through the book. These signs in the sun, the moon and the stars. And then we've got the people in the book of Joshua hide themselves in caves to flee from God's wrath because there's a meaty shower and all these things going on. And this is exactly what we've already seen happen in chapter 6 under the sixth seal. And then the book ends, the book of Joshua, with God making a covenant with his people. God who's delivered his people makes a covenant with them. And the book of Revelation will end in just the same way. It's an incredible parallel that you see and you realize these are the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit. The design that God has woven into Scripture, how every book interworks with every other book, this is not the work of man. Man could never orchestrate or design these things. And there are many other things that we could look at, but those things specifically, you can see this incredible parallel. We carry on in verse 3, and John says, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it, with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Now this is interesting because back in chapter 5 verse 8 we were told that the golden bowls were full of these odours which represented the prayers of the saints. What we're seeing effectively here is this angel coming and presenting all of the prayers of the saints through the ages now on this altar before the throne. Throughout scripture, incense is used as a type of worship and prayer, that which we lift up before the Lord. That is the the golden altar is referred to here. Do you remember back in Exodus when Moses is being given the instructions for the building of the tabernacle and the furniture to go therein? That it's a shadow of what was in heaven. He's been given a details to make a copy of what already existed in heaven. So now this golden altar, now... It's also sometimes referred to as the brazen altar. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle, and later the temple, this brazen altar was where these sacrifices were offered. And it's interesting because what we find is that once the sacrifice had been consumed, there was a, a larger altar outside. The burning coals were then taken to the incense altar, or the golden altar, the brazen altar, where they would heat the incense and produce this sweet smell. This incense as it burned that gave a lovely aroma. And of course it was representative of the prayers of the saints. We'll talk a bit more about it in just a moment. That's a, an idea, you can't really see the picture, it's not that bright. But that is, this is in the Temple Institute in Israel. Um, and this is a uh, model, uh, a mannequin if you like, uh, of the high priest already clothed with all the right apparel already given to him. And this is a, a brazen altar that they've already constructed, ready to go into the newly rebuilt temple when it's done. And of course the plans haven't yet um, started, hasn't been built yet, but the Bible says it will be built on the, on the temple mount. So this is giving an idea of the size of it as the scale of a man, a six foot man typically. Uh, And that's the size of this altar. Now this is where this golden altar would sit. So you've got the table of showbread where the bread was uh, 12 loaves of bread for the 12 tribes. The lampstand 
the menorah you're familiar with. This is the entrance into the tabernacle and then the golden altar here. And then in the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant would be. But this is this place just by the, the door of the Holy of Holies. This smell would then go in before effectively God's throne. And obviously that's a model of what we have in heaven. Now really what this is all speaking of, the, the there's lots of typology here. But when we have been consumed on God's altar, it's Oswald Chambers kind of puts it as giving up the right to ourselves. When we come to that place where we realize that actually our lives are not about what we want. Psalm 37 is beautiful. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So many people interpret that, that, well, if I do things and please God, I can have what I want. That's not what it's saying. It's saying if you delight yourself in God, God will place within you the right desires, his desires. God will give you the desires of your heart. So the desires you have will be things for for godly things. It's when we come to that place that we realize that our lives are not our own. We are here now for God's purpose, for God's glory. And Jesus speaks of giving up home and families and wives and children and making sacrifices effectively for the kingdom. Why? Well, because ultimately we'll receive reward for those things, but it's because we love God, because we are so grateful of all he's done for us, that we want to give our lives to him. It's really a case of yielding complete control to God. As I said before, there's two thrones. If you understand these two thrones, you'll get life and you'll get scripture. You'll understand both things. There's the throne of David. If you understand the throne of David, it makes sense of what's going on in the world, what's going on in the Middle East, the conflict we have, or the issues with Islam, all these things. If you understand the throne of David and what that is all about and what it means. And the second throne is the throne of your own heart. That's the other one, the big challenge. Because either you are going to be sitting there or Jesus Christ is going to be sitting there. And when we come to that place of realizing we need to yield the throne of our lives over to Jesus, allow him to be truly Lord of our lives. You know, we worship him as Savior, but we need to accept him as Lord and Master as well. You know, it's a case of crucifying our flesh and trusting completely in him. You know, We spoke when we were going through the book of Galatians recently of the whole wonderful subject of grace and you'll be looking at that more next Sunday. But grace really is incredible because we find that we've got this liberty, this freedom. And yet we shouldn't use this freedom we have as a license for the flesh. It's a case then of giving everything over to God willingly, not because we are compelled to do so because otherwise there'll be some judgment or wrath against us no it's because we love jesus it should be an absolute joy and pleasure to turn away from the things of this world and turn to christ because we love him because of all that he's done that's why we are given the communion to celebrate as a continual ordinance that's why jesus gave us that it wasn't just as a strange thing church to do it was to continually bring us back to the cross to remember what he's done for us. You know, and when our lives truly become a sacrifice, and as a number of verses speak of, a sweet-smelling aroma, we become pleasing to Jesus. Now, this is all being offered, these these prayers are being offered on this altar, effectively. Chuck Nisler says this, and it's so true, prayer is not about getting man's will done in heaven, but about getting God's will done on earth. You know, so often we think, sometimes when we pray, that we're trying to change God's mind. You know, trying to convince him about something that we want or need or perceive that we need. But really, prayer should be us partnering with God in what he's doing. 
So what are the prayers that are being offered on the golden altar? Well, in short, they're all the prayers that have been prayed from Adam through to Abraham, David and Daniel and so on, all the way through to the disciples, all the way through the ages of the church to now. All of the prayers when we have been praying, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and this is the prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That's the prayer, and it's been prayed all through Scripture. David repeatedly prayed for the kingdom to come. I don't know, even the psalm we read this morning, Psalm 12, is speaking of exactly what we're looking at here in Revelation. And so many of the psalms are prayers for the kingdom to come, for Jesus to establish righteousness and justice in the earth, that the wicked and the oppressors would be cut off, and those that are righteous would be established. Job looked expectantly for the kingdom. He spoke of the time when in his own flesh he would see his Redeemer. He knew that he would die, but there would be a time coming when he would be resurrected. And there would be a time when his Redeemer would be on the earth and he would be with him. Abraham knew that this current order was not God's best. Abraham only effectively dwelt in tents. He knew that there was something far better than this world has at the moment. And he was looking for the kingdom to come. Daniel and the prophets wrote extensively about the kingdom. It's one of the largest subjects of prophecy. In fact, it's probably the largest subject of prophecy throughout the entire Bible, this coming kingdom. Matthew 32 times speaks of or records Jesus' words about the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus told us, as we've already seen, in what we refer to very often as the Lord's Prayer, to pray for it. John is seeing in heaven then a petition effectively signed by the church and by the other saints, all the Old Testament saints, down through the ages, David, Abraham, all those we've just mentioned and many more. is this prayer for God to restore the kingdom to the one found worthy to open the seven seals. In other words, these prayers that are being offered on this altar of incense are prayers for the Lamb of God, to take the kingdom. And we're not talking about the kingdom of God. That's the the everything, where God dwells and reigns and everything is within God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. And Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God not being visible. You can't see the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of heaven is different. The kingdom of heaven is speaking of a literal kingdom, an earthly kingdom where Jesus Christ will rule and reign. You know, I don't know what it is you thought you've prayed when you prayed that prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The, the, the funny thing is that many churches around this country will pray that prayer every week. And they have no concept or understanding that what they're praying is that Jesus' millennial kingdom will come. That he will come and set up and return and sit on the throne of David. That he'll subdue the nations under him. You know, these aren't just fanciful beliefs or ideas or fairy stories. This is truth. This is what the word of God reveals. When we pray that prayer, thy kingdom come. You're praying for Jesus to return and establish his kingdom and be king over the earth. And we wonderful, the, the whole world. I mean, Isaiah speaks so much of how the world will be different. Speaks of animals being at peace with each other, children playing with cobras, snakes and so on and not being hurt. We can't imagine a world like that. That was the world that God had intended originally. The world will get back to the way it was. The question is, is your name on that petition? This petition that we're looking at in Revelation here, 
Is your name on that petition that is being presented? Are you really praying for the kingdom to come? Verse 4 says, And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire off the altar and cast it to the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. This is now the second earthquake that we've seen in the book of Revelation. The earth literally is rocked at this point. And we're told, And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Earth itself at this point effectively is anticipation of what's coming. And we read in scripture in Romans chapter 8 verse 19 onwards, it says, For the earnest expectation of the creature, speaking of creation, waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Waits for those who are God, us, to be truly manifest as, as God would have us be. For the creature was made subject, the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. That's the world as as we know it. The world at the moment is in the bondage of corruption. Paul tells us that there's going to come a time that creation itself will be released from this corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. He says, for we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And creation itself is getting ready. We read in the book of Acts. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Luke making the point. The fact that creation itself will be transformed, the time of restitution of all things. Everything will be put back to the way it was. You know, this is a a verse that really makes a, a mockery of evolution. Because things are going to be put back to the way they were. Well, if you believe in the nonsense of evolution, then it's suggesting things are going to go back to nature red in tooth and claw and survival of the fittest. All those nonsense ideas of the way that we've come to be as we are. Of course, there is struggle. Of course, there is survival of the fittest. We see that in the world today, but that is not how mankind got to be here. That's not our history. We're told that things are going to go back to the way they were. That's speaking of the Garden of Eden. That's speaking of God's perfect creation. So this then brings us to the end of the seventh seal. And now... We get ready for these trumpet judgments. And what we're going to see is hail and fire and blood raining down on the earth. A third of the trees and the grass is going to be burnt up. Let's look at the scriptures themselves. We're moving chronologically through these things as they seem to be laid out. So the first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood and they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of the trees was burnt up and all the green grass was burnt up. Now you remember again, the servants of God were sealed so these things won't hurt them or affect them. And that happened, had to happen first before this judgment could come, and now it's here. Now, there does seem to be an intended similarity again with the plagues in Egypt, because of the types of judgment that's coming on the earth. That was a model in advance, if you like, and this now really is the, the real fulfillment. Of course, just as that was real, so will this be real? It's not figurative, it's not some point to illustrate trouble. It's really speaking of these things. Interestingly, in the, the plagues in Exodus 8 and 9, uh, we see the same type of judgments and also reference to the Assyrian who was the Pharaoh at the time. Well, Antichrist is also given the same name. 
But what is it that causes this catastrophe? You want to spend a moment. We've got this incredible thing. We've got hail of uh, fire mingled with blood cast upon the earth, and this is going to cause a third part of the trees to be burnt up and the grass to be burnt up. Well, firstly, we've got these volcanic eruptions. This we've seen already, but there's another earthquake now. This is potentially going to be part of the problem. It's going to throw up all sorts of debris into the atmosphere. The only place for that to go, of course, is back down. It could account for all the things mentioned, i.e. the hail, the fire mingled with blood, because, of course, within the earth itself, there is the blood of creatures, man who's died and whose blood has been shed into the earth. The idea of all this being thrown up in the air and coming back down, it doesn't necessarily mean liquid blood. It could be the dry blood. That's a possibility of what's happening here. Just as an aside, it could well be that Solomon and Gomorrah were destroyed in exactly the same way. Solomon makes the point that there's nothing new under the sun. That which uh, will be is that which has been, he says in Ecclesiastes 1.9. So we may see, in fact I do think we see through the tribulation, judgments of which we've already seen types throughout history. And remember Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. He goes on and says, likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat and drink, and they bought and sold, they planted and built. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, and destroyed them all. Thus even shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So we see a direct correlation, Jesus himself saying, those things happened in the past, it's also going to happen. We see it happening now. Now, these will be in the notes if you want to look at it deeper. But the suggestion here is that all the materials, the gas, the, the sulfur and everything else, the bitumen that have been under the earth in these oil fields suddenly erupts. The pressure gets too much. It has been suggested and said that the, the oil fields that we have, they wouldn't be able to survive for much more than 10,000 years because the pressure would continually increase. Oh, this may well be what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. Suddenly God allows them, the timing of course is God's, uh, there's no suggestion that this was just a natural phenomenon. God engineered all of these things, of course. But it could be that as all this stuff shoots up in the air and comes down, it buries these cities along the, the bottom end of the, the Dead Sea. These cities, Gomorrah here, Sodom here. Of course, Lot flees to Zor and they're just about protected from this area. But these certainly are covered in this, this material that is coming down from heaven. So it may well be the same type of thing. Another possible scenario though, and this is something that John Coulson suggests, the Carrie Chapel Pass, he says, keep in mind that history verifies that weapon systems have never been developed which have not been used. Therefore, it would be an arbitration of history if all the countries which presently have nuclear weapons, including Russia, France, England, Israel, India, China, the US, and host of others, fail to use them. I'm not saying this passage should only refer to a nuclear holocaust. However, the fact remains that upon the detonation of a nuclear warhead, 250 miles an hour winds of fire follow. In addition, above ground, nuclear tests on the island of Bikini caused the surrounding water to shoot thousands of feet into the air where it froze and returned as hailstones big enough to destroy the equipment intended to monitor it. So there's possibilities of how these things can happen, but don't walk away this morning thinking this is just some fanciful thing. These things really will happen. It will be unimaginable. We now get on to the second trumpet and we see this massive meteor that's going to hit the oceans and it's going to affect a third of all marine life and a third of the ships are going to be destroyed as a result. We read verse 8 And the second angel sounded and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea and a third part of the sea became blood. Just note what John says here. 
And by the way, this seems to parallel the first plague in Egypt. It's, as it were, a great mountain. Now, I think, again, as I suggested, it's probably going to be a great meteor, a burning meteor that comes out from, from space, coming and hit the earth, hit the sea somehow. Now, if so, the ensuing tidal waves would be devastating. And that may well be a cause of what affects the ships on the sea. It's been suggested that anything up to about 8,000 ships could be destroyed, if we're talking about a third of the ships in the sea. But notice that John actually says that this is not as blood, but the oceans become blood. Now that seems to be a supernatural work, just as it was done in Egypt. You know, it was these kind of things that were done in Egypt that eventually convinced even the Egyptian uh, magicians that these weren't little tricks that Moses and Aaron were doing. This was something that God was doing. We saw a third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. And this really is quite... Incredible. A third of the sea becomes blood, a third of marine life dies, as I said, possibly up to 8,000 ships are destroyed. Now, what's interesting here is that marine life produces oxygen. And we tend to think, don't we, of plants and trees as being the thing that that gives us oxygen. Well, of course they do, but 70% of Earth's oxygen comes from the oceans. 70%. And we're talking about a third of organic life in the oceans dying. Now, we're talking, therefore, a third of 70% in terms of the oxygen that's being produced. In effect, we're saying that as much as the rainforests and vegetation and plant life on Earth produce oxygen, it's as if all of that is wiped out. Now, just as an interesting aside, a third of the ships apparently can be found at any one time in the Atlantic Ocean, which also just happens to be about a third of the world's oceans. Just an interesting thought. So... We're not sure where this will happen, we're not told, we're not given details. But distribution of food is going to become very difficult if suddenly so many vessels are, are destroyed as a result of this. And, you know, things that we take for granted, like breathing, it suddenly becomes something that really will be an issue. A third of the oxygen production effectively being taken away. We then get to the third trumpet, and this is another star, if you like, that hits the rivers and contaminates. Now, this could be a number of things. It could be another meteor. It could be a, a, a nuclear missile or a number of different possibilities. Let's read the text. A third angel sounded and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. Just, you read this and John is trying to describe what he's seeing. But if you saw a nuclear missile screaming through the sky, burning away, how would you describe it? And it fell upon a third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the the case, but just as an interesting side, the Russian word for Wormwood is translated Chernobyl. When the Chernobyl reactor problem occurred in 1986, many people did die and the surrounding water supplies were contaminated. I'm not suggesting that's the case. What I think is interesting is that God has already allowed a lot of these things. So if anybody were to look at this text and say, oh, that's, that's ridiculous, that would never happen. Well, it has happened. It's already happened. I'm not saying that Chernobyl and uh, that is a fulfillment of this prophecy, but I think, I think it's a type. I think God allowed it to show people that these things really can happen. Let's move on. The fourth trumpet, and then we find this third of the sun and moon now will turn 
the darkness. The fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun and moon was smitten, and the third part of the moon, the third part of the stars, and so the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. Now, as this fourth angel sounds, something happens that reduces the amount of light we get. Now, it could be something supernatural with those celestial orbs themselves, but it could also be something blocking the light getting to us, and that's possibly more probable. Either nuclear fallout or volcanic debris or all sorts of things that, because of the things we've just been seeing, could now affect. Verse 13 carries on. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpets of the three angels which are yet to sound. And the word translated angel here in this verse is actually the Greek word for eagle. According to the Septuagint and other documents, other historical references we have, it seems that there's an eagle flying through heaven. Why and what, I don't fully understand and we don't know, but certainly there's this recorded of, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. That, that phrase, the inhabitants of the earth, we find a number of times, or those that dwell on the earth, the idea is used often in Revelation, and it really literally means those that have chosen to make the world their home. You see, we've chosen to make heaven our home. We, we know that this world is not our home. Our, our home in our dwelling is with the Lord. That's why we're looking eagerly for the coming of the Lord. Twelve times in Revelation that idea occurs of those that have chosen to make this world their home. That's a locust storm. That's quite incredible, isn't it? I'll talk a bit more about that in just a moment. But this woe, 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 if we were to translate it into our vernacular, it's, you ain't seen nothing yet. All the stuff that's happened up until this point, which is really quite frightening, is breathtaking. Now, I just want to pause for a moment. Because there's a solemn warning that's given to us in Proverbs 17, verse 5. It says, Whoso mocks the poor reproaches his maker, and he that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. You see, we shouldn't sit here and look at these things and a little bit like a, a movie, something at the cinema, think, oh, this is quite exciting. We're talking about souls of people that are being judged because of their rejection of God and rejection of Jesus. Ezekiel 18.23 says, God speaking, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord, and not that he should return from his ways and live? Don't forget as we look at these things, God is not wanting to do this, but because he's a just God, Judgment has to be meted out on those that have rejected him. And God, as we've already seen and Peter records for us, is long-suffering. Notice already what we've seen, a third of the waters, a third of the grass, a third of the ships, a third of the living creatures in the oceans. Everything is in measure. God is giving people opportunity to repent. As we move into chapter 9, this won't take us that long, but there's some stuff here that really is quite frightening. We find that there's some demonic locusts that are going to be released from a place referred to as the bottomless pit and they're given power to torture men for five months. Now again, there's another locust storm you can see there in the picture and another there. These things do happen. By the way, the one in Egypt that we read about, we were told that there would never be another plague of locusts like that one. So when you see things like this, just... Try and get your head around what it was actually like in Egypt. The fifth angel sounded, 
And I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now, just a couple of comments. This star seems to be quite clearly an angelic being because he's given a key. There's a, he's given this personal title. To him was given. Well, you, the star would have no need for a key. So it's given to an angel. And some people think that this is a, possibly Satan because Jesus spoke of, I saw Satan fall from heaven. And oh, well, they, this, no, this is not the same. We'll see that later on in Revelation, that prophetic utterance that Jesus gave, speaking of Satan falling from heaven. But this is a good angel. We know that because in chapter 10 we have another reference to another angel and we're told there that this other angel, like the first one effectively, so we've got one here and we've got one there. Both of these angels are good angels fulfilling a mission that God has given. And this one has been given the key to the bottomless pit. You're not going to give that key to a fallen angel, are you? This is one of God's servants. So again, he's given this key. This bottomless pit literally translates as the long shaft of the abyss. Now the abyss was understood by the rabbis and Greek philosophers to be this hollow place in the centre of the earth being the abode of the dead. That may seem a strange thought to us, but there's a lot of biblical support for the idea. In Numbers, speaking of Korahs, they went down alive into the pit. Ezekiel says, When I shall uh, bring thee down with them that descend into the pit, with the people of old time, and shall set thee in the low parts of the earth. Ezekiel 31.16 I made the nations to shake at the sound of his fall when I cast him down to hell with them that descend into the pit. So there's a lot of these references, and there's a number of others that are there for you to look at, that all seem to suggest that this place within the centre of the earth is a place for departed souls. But seemingly also these demonic beings are there. Now Peter... In 2 Peter 2 verse 4 says this, speaking of the angels that had sinned prior to the flood because of their relationship with the women of the earth and so on, he says, God spared not the angels that sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Now the word that is translated hell here is a Greek word Tartarus and it's believed to be the deepest part of Hades, deepest part of this abode in the centre of the earth. Now some scholars believe that God has held these angels in chains until this point. I think this is what it's saying. This verse here, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Not that they've got to wait until they're judged, but they are being reserved unto literally a time of judgment. They're being waiting, they're waiting there and they will be loosed when God will allow it in God's time for this judgment. And I think that's exactly what's happening. I think that's who these demonic beings are. We're told, and he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Again, that's plague in Exodus 10, verses 12 to 15, is our reference of the shadow of this. But God states, as I said, that that plague of locusts would never be repeated, not in the same way. These are clearly different. These are demonic beings. And it was commanded then that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Now, folks, I know I keep banging on about this, but this means the church is not on earth at this point in time, because only the 144,000 have been sealed. They're the only ones that were sealed. The church were not recorded as being sealed. And these locusts can go and hurt anybody that is not sealed. 
The, the Bible speaks of the church being the bride of Christ. Would Christ leave his bride on earth to endure these things? Is that kind of honeymoon he was preparing? No. God has already organized and arranged for the church to be taken out of the world before these events. And there are a number of people that have the view that the church will go through the tribulation. If you read these scriptures, if you look at what they're saying, that cannot be the case. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Now apparently the bite and sting of a scorpion is one of the greatest pains that we can know, that man can know. In those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and they shall desire to die, but death shall flee from them. It's quite a telling verse because it says the people are going to be suicidal effectively, wanting to kill themselves because of the torment of these creatures, but they can't die. Well, it just shows you that God is sovereign. God holds our lives in his hand. He's appointed our our birth. He's appointed the time of our death. And these people want to die, but God won't allow them to die because they've got to endure this judgment that God is bringing upon the earth through these demonic creatures. It's a a horrible, scary, frightening time. We can't begin to get our heads around the, the whole concept. We're told the shape of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men, and their hair as the hair of women, and their teeth as the teeth of lions. It's a very scary description. Don't make any mistake, the reason we're given all this detail is so that we don't start assuming that this is some picture language meaning something else. John is looking at these things. He's describing it for you. He's telling you what he really was seeing. That's a picture by a Christian artist called Rodney Matthews depicting this time and this is his impression of this bottomless pit being opened and this black smoke coming and these demonic locust-like creatures with these crowns of gold and faces of men and hair like women. It's quite a, a scary thought. I mean, we've seen lots of movies and films of you know, monsters and so on. I mean, nothing is going to prepare the world for these things. And they had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was the sound of chariots, and many horses were running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. Why five? Because I think it's grace. Five in scripture often is used as a number to refer to grace. Joseph's portion, that he, or the portion rather he gave to Benjamin when they all came and sat before him in Egypt, was five times larger. And many other References in scripture. So possibly God only allows this for that time. See, God is still a graceful God, wanting people to turn to him. We're told that they had a king over them. They're not ordinary locusts. Locusts don't have kings. We're told that um, by Solomon. But these locusts had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit. So we know these are angelic beings, obviously fallen angelic beings, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue has his name Apollyon. J. Vernon McGee makes this comment. He says, These locusts are further differentiated from ordinary locusts in that they have a king over them. Proverbs 30.27 says of natural locusts that they have no king. The king or leader of these locusts is probably one of the fallen angels, the chief henchman of Satan, and he's permitted to lead an invasion of earth for the first time. This is something that is going to be rather frightening. His name in Hebrew means destruction, and in Greek it means the destroyer. Verse 12 says, One woe is past. Wow. That's just one. And behold, there's another two that are coming hereafter. So we've had 
Five judgments, five trumpet judgments have passed. Trumpet six and seven now are about to sound. Uh, just to remind again, all of this, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, all seem to be leading to a crescendo which we're going to reach in chapter 10, verse 6. I want to make a note of that and look ahead. We're going to get to that crescendo. All of this is leading to that point. Remember also this, seemingly all of this is the prelude to the great tribulation. It's God's wake-up call to the earth. This is before things really start to get nasty. So this is horrible in a sense as we look at it, but this is just the beginning. As I said earlier, up until now, everything has been in measure. So now we go on to the sixth trumpet. This 200 million demonic army released to kill a third of men from the area of the Euphrates River. You're familiar, of course, with this area. We know Babylon sits down here. Baghdad, we're familiar today, but Babylon's just down here. And then Israel in this area here. The sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, lose the four angels which abound in the great river Euphrates. Four angels that are loose must be fallen angels here. It's clear from the fact that they're bound. And the Euphrates appears to be this dividing line on God's map of the world. It was the eastern boundary of the land that God had promised to Abraham. Interestingly, Rome conquered up to the Euphrates, but no further. At that time, the territory on the other side of the Euphrates was the, the home of the Parthian Empire, the home of the Magi. That's why the Romans were so fearful of the Magi. They were the ones who would establish and make kings. And when these Magi arrive, it's possibly interrupted with a thousand outriders with them in Jerusalem. That's why all Jerusalem was troubled. It wasn't because we had three kings with little funny hats on. Another story in itself. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay a third part of men. Just, just for a moment, remember here, this verse, God is in complete control. Because God has pinned this down, not only to a year that this is going to happen, not just a month, not a day, but a specific hour. Everything is working to God's timetable. You know, we may look around the world and not understand what's going on or why it's going on. and Sometimes we even struggle with ourselves and ask God why for different things. Well, God is in complete control. You know, although this verse is amongst the verse speaking of judgment, take comfort from the fact that God is still on the throne. He's still in control. Verse 16, And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000, that's 2 million. And I heard the number of them. I mean, John's kind of, you know, kind of frantically kind of scribbling things down here, trying to get all this in his head and record it for us. Remember, he's been told to write these things down and to send it to the seven churches. God's clock is always on schedule. Now, in the fourth seal, back in chapter 6, verse 8, we saw a third of mankind die. Under the third trumpet, it caused many men to die, we were told. In Revelation 8.10, we saw that this morning. And now we've got a third of those that are left. So we're talking over half of the population of the world at this point has died. It's incredible. We'll, we'll conclude in just a moment. You'll see it's the bizarrest thing of all. But verse 17, And thus I saw the horses and in the vision and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. 
Some have suggested, by the way, that this 200 million strong army coming from the east is going to be China and so on. Well, of course, China has a large army, but they don't have these breastplates of fire and jacinth and brimstone and the heads of their horses are as heads of lions and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. Unless, of course, this is some sort of invasion, but it does seem to be, without question here, some sort of demonic aspect to these things. But again, we've got to realize that John is doing his best to describe what he's seen. John had never seen tanks. He'd never understood modern warfare as we understand it. And maybe that's what he's speaking to. The heads of the horses, heads of lions. Out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. Don't know. But this is all marching towards Israel. Now it's just interesting, in the book of Joel, I think we have a model of the fall feasts. In Israel, you remember, you've got these feasts they have. these seven feasts through the year. We have the feasts that we're currently experiencing this week. We talk of Passion Week, beginning with Palm Sunday and so on. And you've got the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. And then 50 days after that, you've got the Feast of Pentecost. So that's where we are calendar-wise right now. Later in the year, in the seventh month of the Jewish year, you get the, the autumn feasts, or the fall feasts, as the Americans would refer to it. Okay? Now these feasts seem to be summarized for us in the book of Joel. All the first lot of feasts have already been fulfilled. The feasts given to Israel were simply a model of something that God was going to do. The Passover was a model of Christ's death for us as the Passover lamb. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was speaking of Jesus being put into the ground as a grain of wheat that then would bear much fruit. The Feast of First Fruits is Jesus' resurrection. That's already been fulfilled. The Feast of Harvest or Pentecost is the birth of the church and may well also coincide with the rapture of the church, interestingly enough. There's some interesting asides that we could look at maybe another time. But the last three feasts don't seem to have been fulfilled yet. And it seems that now the prophetic model that was laid down in those feasts is being fulfilled. And we see it in the book of Joel. We have the judgments of the trumpets. Then we find there's this time of atonement and then tabernacles. These three feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Every one of these seemingly symbolizing these events that we're looking at in Revelation and specifically in regard to Israel. Particularly looking at this Sixth trumpet judgment here. In Joel 1.6 it says, For a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the teeth of a great lion. It's speaking of what we've just read in Revelation. Joel's seeing the same thing beforehand. Joel chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, yes, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. And we just carry on in verse 5. Like the noise of chariots on top of the mountains, they shall leap like the noise of flame of fire that devours the stubble as a strong people set in battle array before their face. The people shall be much pain. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march every one on his ways. And they shall not break their ranks. Now Joel's speaking there of what's going to come. I encourage you to look at the book of Joel. Look at that slide a moment ago. Look at those notes. Look at the prophetic model that's laid down as God is working through. We'll come back to that later in the book as we study through looking at Israel specifically. Just a couple of last few verses here. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. I mean, that's a frightening army to face, isn't it? An army that 
They fall on a sword, they're, they're, they're injured, but then they just get up and they carry on. They're not wounded by it. They shall, this is, this is again, this can't be a natural army in that sense. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw their shining. Joel speaking of the same things that we're looking at in Revelation. Okay. A few verses and we draw to a close. By these, Three was a third part of men killed by the fire, and by the smoke, and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. Again, this is just hard for us to try and get our heads around. Matthew twenty four twenty one, Jesus said, And except those days be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. You start to see those comments that Jesus makes. We're just little aside. These are real. If it wasn't God's grace, the whole world would be destroyed. Again, bear in mind that the great tribulation, the real judgments, haven't yet come. So everything we've seen this morning, as frightening, as scary, and horrific as it may seem, we haven't yet got to the great tribulation. We're told for the power is in their mouth and their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents, and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Best advice would be to, to run, probably, from these things. Actually, that's not. That's not the best advice. The best advice is to repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ. To be accounted worthy, to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. I think all of us this morning have made that decision, but anyone listening to this audio, we need to put our trust in Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He loves us. He gave his life for us. And there is a way of escaping these things. Because Jesus has already taken upon himself the wrath that we deserve, that we're seeing meted out here. Verse 20 carries on, And the rest of men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Now there is an interesting aside, because the nations that are on the east of the Euphrates, typically have millions of gods, the Hindus and so on. And the Chinese have a multitude of things they worship. And You know, this is speaking of those that worship devils and idols and things that really aren't gods. But this is the, the, the verse that just, I just, I don't know. Verse 21, Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornications, nor of their thefts. I just, how can we get through all of that and people go, you know what, I'll just, I'm not going to trust Jesus. Why should I, why should I carry on? Why should I, you know, put trust in Jesus Christ? I'm enjoying this really. I mean, I just don't get the mindset of all these things happening on earth and people not wanting to put their trust in Jesus. How stubborn and rebellious can mankind really be? You see, again, God could unleash all hell at once and destroy mankind. But with each succeeding judgment, we see his mercy and long-suffering. Up until this point, everything has been measured, meted out at the right amount, but not too much, to give people the opportunity. We'll pick it up from there next time. But the real challenge for us is not just to go home and go, wow, that's interesting, but to realize that we're talking about the people that are walking around the streets of Haven and Waterlooville and Portsmouth and the surrounding areas here. These are the people that we bump into at work and in the supermarkets. 
these people that are out there are the, the ones who will be enduring and experiencing the things that are recorded here. And the reason that we have been given this record is not just so we can go, oh, glad we're not there. Of course, there is an element of that, and it's right and proper that we look at these things and we are even more grateful of our salvation. But, of course, the real lesson for us in this is to realize that the challenge is to be witnesses, as we've been called to be, to be salt and light all the time we're here. People may think we're mad. There was a car sticker once I saw, which I quite liked. He said, it was a Christian one. It says, laugh now, but one day we'll rule the world. It's true. It's what the Bible says. And, you know, the world can laugh. The world can mock us. But Jesus is coming back. And prior to his return, these judgments will come. We have a great opportunity. And I think one of the greatest lessons that come out of the book of Revelation is a challenge for us to be witnesses and to tell people before it's too late. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, as we look at these things this morning, Father, we are mindful of our own frailty, Lord. We just look at the, in a sense, the horror of these things that are coming, but Lord, we recognize that you are a just God. You, your word tells us you are good and you do good. So none of these things are unwarranted. None of these things are unfair or unjust. This is what man deserves for every child that's been aborted, every person that has been murdered, every young person that's been stabbed in a gang or every young girl that's been raped. Lord, all of these things that we have done to each other, all of the people that are suffering in the world because of hunger, because of the greed of those that have the wealth, all of the diseases that we have allowed and engineered and brought into being. Well, when we stop and think of the wickedness of man, we realize that you are truly just in bringing these judgments. And yet, Lord, you've given us this record to stir us. Father, your word tells us that all of these things are to... Equip us to furnish us, Lord, all scriptures given by inspiration that we be thoroughly furnished unto good works. So, Lord, stir us this morning, we pray, that we would leave here wanting to do good works for you in the strength that you provide. Lord, we pray this week that you open up opportunities for us to talk to other people, to warn them about the reality of the days in which we live and to tell them that there is hope, there is a way, there is a saviour, there is a kinsman. We'll have, just thank you, Lord, for these things this morning. Stir us, we pray, and may we live lives, Lord, in gratitude for this wonderful salvation that you have wrought for us. Jesus, we love you and we thank you now. And all God's people said, Amen. May God bless you this week. We'll uh, close there this morning.